Yeah, I mean, I think we should get a couple more people involved because I want to hear what other people are reading. Does anybody else read books, though? <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to At WCSU, the podcast of the people. I'm Paul Steinmetz here with Pete Puccio, and together we bring you all the information about Western Connecticut State University. Today, our main interview is with Audrey Redpath, a student journalist who is also active in the Student Government Association and the Board of Regents. And Audrey will speak for all students about the state of the university. Our regular contributors will also join us, Dr. Rada Krell, who will tell us about the secret world of the science departments on campus, and Director of Library Services, Veronica Knausis, with the second book talk of the semester. It's going to be a great show, Pete. I guess we can talk about the testing schedule and all of that, too, if you want. Oh, sure. Might as well, right? Yeah. What the heck? But before we go there, um, Audrey's interview was great. I have never felt more comfortable that someone is in a place of, like, that she's up there at her position at the Capitol doing the thing. Like, I feel like she's a, a great voice to have. And been mm-hmm. at the same time so uncomfortable and so worried that she's gonna like find something out about me. Like, just <laughs> uh, that whole investigative thing is so it's so cool. I find that so impressive. But it just made, not that I'm doing anything that needs to be investigated. But it just yeah, hardly made me nervous just talking to her because she's so inquisitive and so like dogged in her yep. pursuit of the truth. It's funny. She is. She's into it. She's a student journalist, and she. If she gets an idea about finding something out, she's going to track it down, which is the way the great journalists are. It's uh, impressive to have to find in somebody who's still in college, but she's got that. All right, so the testing schedule. Well, you may have heard every student who comes to campus, the people who live on campus, the people who come to class on campus, are going to be tested. We got testing sites on the west side and on the uh, Midtown campus. Monday and Tuesday on Midtown, nine to five. Wednesday and Thursday on West Side, nine to five. So if you step foot on campus and you're a student, you can get tested free. They're going to ask you some questions. Don't worry. They're not going to send you a bill. If you do get a bill, you can ignore it because the state is paying for it. And you can get tested every week, at least for the next several weeks. If that changes because COVID goes away or something, we'll tell you about it. But um, right now, it's pretty simple. And you can go to um, look at our COVID-19 pages. There's a link from the homepage uh, at westwcsu.edu. And uh, you can figure out how to sign up so you don't have to stand in line for a long time. Yeah, is, I was just going to ask, if you, do you make appointments or is it just walk up or what? So, Well, you can walk up, but ideally you'll make an appointment and then we'll know when you're going to be there. You'll know uh, that there won't be a huge line and it'll all be easy. That's great. I've been talking to a couple students and they, they all seem to be kind of on board and, and, you know, think it's cool that they have access to that testing. So, mm-hmm. Um, I know it when I needed good. to get tested a few weeks ago, it was not difficult, but it's kind of a pain. And to know that it's right there and accessible is is cool. It makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, my wife and daughter got tested, I don't know, six weeks or seven, eight weeks ago. And they went on the west side, that free clinic site there. Yep. It's, they sat in there for five hours. Yeah, it only took me three and a half, but I was there... <laughs> 
I was like 20th in line and it still took three and a half hours. So, yeah. But so this is better. It will not take five hours yeah. <laughs> or I don't think it'll take three and a half either. Nice. And you get your results in a couple of days, apparently. So you're good. And of course, if you do get test positive, we have things in place. You don't have to leave campus. We'll put you up in a nice, uh, you know, suite in Fairfield Hall. I guess it's not a suite if you have to walk down the hall to the bathroom, but uh, it's a <laughs> fine, convenient thing, or you could go home. Cool. And, uh, yeah, we're going to keep uh, the campuses as safe as possible and uh, make it work this year. And there is actually a lot of stuff going on virtually for Black History Month. It'll be kind of interesting, you know, historical, educational discussions. It's all going to be posted it is posted on uh, wcsu.edu on the homepage, and um, you should check that out because there is actually a lot going on for Black History Month at Western Connecticut State. Cool. Yeah. And now we can go to our interview with Audrey Redpath. All right. So, Audrey, we brought you on the podcast. We invited you on to talk about your perspective as a student and a journalist but first, I want to talk about this exciting news you have to share with us. Yes. So yesterday, during the meeting of the Student Advisory Committee for the Board of Regents, I was appointed by the other student reps to be chair of the Student Advisory Committee and one of two student votes for the Board of Regents. Well, that's, that is exciting. The Board of Regents is the governing body of the Connecticut State uh, Colleges and University System, of which WestCon is a part. And so you are basically our boss now. Oh, is that what it is? I'm excited yeah. now. I'll have to start sending in <laughs> orders every morning. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I I talked to a few people. I think it's um, it's been... A, a grip since WCSU had some representation in the like committee leadership for the student advisory committee, which is exciting. Um, I think WestCon deserves um, a good voice on this committee, and I hope that I can help with that, both when I was a representative, but now also as chair. And I'm really excited to amplify the voices of all the student reps and their student communities from the community colleges to the four universities. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be exciting. Yes. And you're a good choice, I think, because you kind of tell it like it is, right? You don't uh, care that the chance, the president of the system is there and a bunch of these other suits at the, uh, on the board of regents, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I specifically ran telling the students that I was interested specifically in a platform of transparency and making sure that the decisions that the Board of Regents were making were translated and communicated to the student communities, which I think is one of the main things um, that we struggle with as a system, which is taking all these conversations and arguments between faculty and the Board of Regents and these different political entities and communicating them back in a way that students understand so that they can advocate for and against changes before the decisions are made, instead of finding out about them kind of secondhand once the choice has already been made for them. Oh. Um, so I just want to sit in that room 
with um, the governor's appointees and the professional uh, administrators and the faculty advisory committee representatives and try and help make that process and make all the decisions that are coming through really clear back to the students as well as trying to make sure that some of the things that students are most concerned about actually end up on that agenda this year too. Mm -hmm. Good. You'll be a good student rep. Well, and uh, you, you know, you're a full voting member. Your vote counts just as much as everybody else's. So you'll be a good representative, uh, not just for Westcon, but for all students across the system. So thanks for doing that. Thank you. Now you've been uh, very active as a reporter and editor for the Echo, the student newspaper that covers Westcon. You're very active in student government. So you know a lot of stuff that goes on on campus. You observe it. How do you think things have been going so far this semester? Well, I think myself and a lot of other students are glad about the precautions that we're taking at the top of this semester. Even if it might have been a bit of a pain in the butt for some people to have that first um, kind of hybrid week where we weren't on campus, but the classes were kicking off and residential students had some time to adjust on campus and wait for test results. Mm -hmm. um, it seemed like a smart way to hedge a little bit of the risk of bringing back all of the commuters and all of the residents onto campus at the same time. Um, but even beyond that, beyond being a good safety move, uh, as an academic resource mentor in Penny, I was talking to a bunch of residents about how that week felt for them for classes. And they said it actually almost made for classes that don't always give you a syllabus week or a transition period at the beginning of their courses. It gave them time to like take a breath and prepare for the semester, which is almost kind of like a positive academic side effect to what seemed to be primarily a safety policy, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, I like to see that the the new COVID precautions has us testing 100% of the residential students. Um, I was a big knock on the door questioner of our statistics last semester because um, I follow them pretty closely. And I think one of the issues that all universities have is your residential student population is already a subset of your um, campus population when you have in-person classes. So when we were only doing the um, the advised uh, percentage that went up to 25% throughout the semester, um, we were kind of getting a subset of a subset, which could have made it possible that we might miss COVID tests, uh, COVID positives that weren't getting tested each week. And this new policy, which I think came through collaboration with the Department of Health, um, seems like it's going to eliminate any of that like gray area or uncertainty about at least residential student um, cases, athletes and student workers on campus. And then hopefully, hopefully commuting students will take the four day out of the week availability of free testing and take up the university on their um, suggestion to try and do it every week that they're on campus. Um, and then we'll see a lot more accurate statistics, which should hopefully 
allow the university to mobilize and actually address outbreaks if we have any. I'm crossing my fingers that we don't, but <laughs> uh, three semesters into this situation, we'll take what we can get uh, preparation-wise. Yeah. Right. So do you feel safe right now? Um, I feel a lot safer than I think I normally would. Danbury in per particular is tough statistics-wise. It's still, it's still up there in particularly that rate of cases per 100,000 um, compared to a lot of other Connecticut cities. But we're in Westcon is kind of like its own island within Danbury, and we're doing our best. I'm a lot less anxious about it than I would have been last semester. And I'm hearing a lot less anxiety from other students. Um, there was a lot of concern over the intercession about what it would look like coming back. But those same people who seem to be anxious about it, who were worried about coming back, um, seem to have been adjusting pretty well. Everybody's always nervous about these in-person classes, and we'll see how that shakes out. Um, but in general for the campus presence and being back at school. Mm -hmm. With those in-person classes, if everybody wears their masks and they're socially distanced, it should be, it seems like, okay, don't you think? Yeah, it should be. Um, it's just one of those things where students have to trust everybody in their class, have to trust the instructor, have to comply themselves. And people have like varying levels of faith in the other people around them. Yes. Um, hopefully Westcon, uh, Westcon's community can embrace the many signs around campus and all the education on what's right and how we should approach stuff. Um, and that can carry on to in-class behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, you're in the residence halls, right? So you see a lot of students and behavior. How has it been so far this year? And has it changed since last semester? Well, we're only a week and a half in so far, hmm. at least. Penny seems to be having a good time. It doesn't seem like we're having um, much rule breaking. People are wearing their masks when they're not in their suites. Um, everyone very dutifully uh, got an accidentally extended quarantine period because of the massive storm that hit us. Mm -hmm. um, so we were all freed on Monday, but the snow was like, uh, actually, I think maybe you get to stay inside for another 48 hours. <laughs> um, but beyond that, um, in general, I think people know what they're doing. There are places where some things could be improved. Um, I'm hoping to see from WCSU more guidance that pushes people toward, at the very least, if you're wearing um, neck gaiters, double layered um, fabric, no bandanas, no none of these uh, alternative masks that without mm -hmm. alteration have proven to not be effective, but were really common on our campus last semester. Mm -hmm. um, I think we actually produced and distributed some of them. Mm -hmm. um, but actually so far haven't seen too many of them. So the um, CDC guidance on doubling up or uh, swapping to alternative mass types might have hit for most students. That's good. And last semester, you and I talked a fair amount about uh, the rules and how they were being applied. Um, and I kept saying, 
you know, uh, we're kind of learning as we're going here. It's a, uh, there's a, a lot of things that we're learning on the fly. How did you feel about how the university handled, you know, our transition to some in-person classes and hybrids and all that kind of uh, thing? Generally, well, um, I think that I haven't seen many issues with classes and students seem to be having good experiences, even adjusting between the different like modes of courses. I actually am seeing more concerns from students about navigating their online classes than I am about the safety of their in-persons. Mm -hmm. And that's just, there's a major academic like culture shift of students who have just never had to take too many um, online synchronous uh, asynchronous classes mm -hmm. and now are learning the like self-sufficiency self-scheduling um, that's required for that format of class which pre-existed like asynchronous online classes have always been an option but they were always an option for a specific type of student um, and you also would I would say most people who took the like async online course either in between semesters or during their main semester would have take, taken one or two in combination with an in-person schedule. So there's the growing pains on that. And um, one good thing that's been happening at WCSU for some of that academic strain is uh, the departments, the provost, the university senate has stepped up to make resources available to try and help students through advising and through measures like the pass fail extension and other things to make it easier for students while we're all dealing with the the COVID situation from safety on up um not completely fall off the planet academically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and that's i think one of the ways that westcon is really thinking about their students yeah so uh, I agree with you that it is hard to learn, uh, especially when you're thrown right into it, into the uh, online, If uh, or it's a different kind of process. So I thought I knew the difference between synchronous and asynchronous, but I'm not sure I do anymore. Do you, can you explain those? Yeah, so an asynchronous class has a set meeting time um, once or twice a week, and it would be kind of like what we're doing now. We're meeting, um, we're recording this through Teams, but a um, synchronous class might use a tool like Teams or WebEx or the highly anticipated return of Zoom <laughs> to colleges and universities in Connecticut. Um, or one, uh, I think we also have Blackboard Collaborate. Um, mm -hmm. And you're meeting during that specific time with your professor and the class as you would if you were in person. And then an asynchronous class is a class where you just have a class listing on Blackboard and it might be set up with a weekly schedule where you get new content every week and you get new assignments every week. Or it might be even more um, self-directed where you have a full semester of content and you have to kind of self-direct and set deadlines and mm -hmm. move yourself through it. And how often do you talk to the professor in an asynchronous class? that falls on the student. So um, it's that's one of the areas where students have to self-advocate 
if they're in an asynchronous class because you might get emails uh, semi-regularly from an asynchronous professor or you might not. Um, you might get updates on their Blackboard on the regular, or you might not. Um, so students in asynchronous class classes have to do more to seek out their professor either during office hours for them or um, sending them emails, asking them questions. A lot of them will have a discussion board uh, section that's just like, do you have any questions for me about the format of the class or grading or anything? Um, but basically when you're adjusting to that type of course, you have to spend the first few days figuring out what style of professor you have for an asynchronous course and how you can connect with them and make sure that you're set up. Mm -hmm. So asynchronous would be good if you want to do all the semester's work in the last week of the semester. <laughs> well, it depends on the grading system for the, yeah. uh, the professor. Some of them might let you do throughout or some might have set deadlines uh, throughout the semester, but it really is you have to keep yourself accountable a bit more in asynchronous classes because you're not going to be seeing either physically or on the screen the professor as often as you would um, in a synchronous uh, online or in-person class. How many online classes do you have? Oh gosh. Um, um, <laughs> one second. Um, I have, I think this semester, one, two, three, four online courses, including my thesis course, and two in-person classes that have not yet been able to meet in person. Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag there. Mm -hmm. um, and none of my online classes this semester are synchronous, so they're all um, asynchronous courses. One of them is I know everything I have to do at the beginning of the semester. Um, I know the deadlines for it, so I could do everything early if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, that's the lecture course for Fitness for Life, a requirement for everybody's degrees. Mm -hmm. um, if you're really motivated with the asynchronous class, you can go online and spend one weekend really prepping and doing the major exams that you need to pass that course. Mm -hmm. um, and then I have my thesis course, which is spread out throughout the whole semester and involves a lot of feedback and uh, review of other people's work, which is also an online course. Wow. So you should do that uh, physical fitness one just in one weekend, right? You're not doing anything else this weekend, are you? <laughs> I'm considering it. I mean, you always have the paired class for it, which is your um, your actual fitness element. Um, uh -huh. And that one you have to do weekly workouts for the whole semester. But you could get the lecture done in a weekend. And I might actually at least finish it this month just so I don't have to think about it. When I was a student, I would have definitely thought about that. Yeah. Probably not done it, though. <laughs> so it sounds like uh, you feel like things are OK so far. What's the big stories that you're going to dig into, the big investigative pieces you're looking at doing this semester? So I am curious, and we'll be looping back around at how we're operating our gyms, because yes. I had um, some concerns about whether WestCon was fulfilling um, uh, sector guidelines um, mandated by the governor's office for COVID, which I believe it wasn't. Um, and 
it'll be interesting to see what the fitness zones are up to this semester. Um, I have an ongoing uh, interest in the Cleary report um, and our compliance with a few things um, regarding regular reporting and the distribution. And um, I am, this is a fun one that nobody will find as interesting as I do, but <laughs> I probably will be looking into the start stop um, report, which is like when the bus leaves and when it returns to certain locations um, from our new contractor for the shuttle service on campus um, compared to our previous previous shuttle service to see whether the shuttles are actually getting to each campus uh, when they're supposed to be picking students up. Actually, I think there will be a lot of interest in that. It, it's going to be hard to um, for you to go through all that information and compile it. But once you get the results, uh, I think there are a lot of students who, I guess I would say, have been dissatisfied with the arrival times of some of the shuttles from time to time. Uh, so that'll be good. I'm looking forward to that. You mentioned the Cleary Act. That's the uh, campus crime report that every college and university in the country has to do each year. Um, and what you're looking into isn't so much about the level of crime on campus, which is pretty low, but um, other procedural things, right? Yeah, so I'm looking into the um, the distribution, which is one of the requirements of the act of that uh, yearly ASR and the also the fire report along with the security report and then the categories that we're supposed to be reporting, mm -hmm. um, particularly, particularly sex offenses. Yeah, the, and what was the other one? The, um, uh, oh, the gyms on campus. I have a little bit of news for you on that. They're going to start, uh, mandating that everyone who uses the gym presents a negative test result uh, before they can go into the gym. Gotcha. For that week or for... For that uh, week, yeah. Period? Nope, every time you go in. Gotcha. Um, so that's even, that's above and beyond the requirements for the sector. So that should yes. be interesting. Mm-hmm. So everybody was very, and that happened because of your reporting, I believe. Oh, that's good to hear. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's it's interesting. I think one of the challenges for a university campus during COVID is that there are very specific requirements for so many different sectors and industries. And something like a university campus falls into so many of those categories based mm. on the services that they offer that it has been a real trial for different um, not just WestCon, but different universities to address. Okay, this is how we run our gym. This is how we run our restaurants. This is how we run our shared bathrooms in our communal housing, all based on completely different documents provided by the federal government, provided by the, the state government through collaborations with the Department of Health. I do not envy the job of trying to parse all of that and send it through to every department where it applies. Um, you hear people tearing their hairs out, uh, trying to figure out how to make their one family restaurant compliant yeah. um, and to keep people as safe as possible. 
And then at a school like Westcon or Yukon or Central, you've got gyms, you've got classrooms, you've got restaurants, you've got housing, you've got offices. It's got to be a big, it's got to be a big undertaking. Mm. I, it is. And, uh, but you've been investigating it and examining it enough to know that and to know uh, all the ins and outs of it better than many of the administrators, I think, including me. So uh, you're doing a good job as a journalist and as a um, student citizen. We're all going to benefit from that. So if anybody's looking for any any work that you're putting out, where would they find you? If you're interested in following along with my work or anything that I have to say about uh, reporting on Westcon or my long-term investigative projects, you can find me at, at Audrey Journo, like the beginning of journalist, at Twitter. And I appreciate you coming onto the podcast with us. Thank you for having me. I always love talking to you. I love talking to you too. And we'll have you on again, okay? Awesome. Thanks, Audrey. Thank you. All right, we have another visit from Dr. Rada Krell, biology professor, and she's going to tell us something new about the scientific method and how it's the foundation of all education and everything we know. Yeah, so buckle up. That sounds like a like a scorcher. Yeah, it was very <laughs> it was deep. And we did get her to agree at some point to bring on uh, some critters. Yes. And actually, one of the critters so. is going to eat some of the other critters. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. I think we'll go viral. <laughs> so we are in our second week of classes now. We were scheduled to have live labs this week. But with the snowstorm, we had to go virtual, and so we did uh, execute our labs in a virtual format, which now, because of the last couple of semesters, we know how to do. So, you know, we kind of uh, pivoted very quickly and were able to do that. So we, we still had class, and we still, um, you know, executed what we needed to do in the best way that we could. Um, but... You know, we're, again, for science, we're still in this early stage of the semester. And one of the key topics, especially for the class that I teach for non-majors, is just introducing the scientific method. And the scientific method is really the foundation for any type of science. And really, as scientists, we like to think it's the foundation for a good way to approach critical thinking towards any question, right? Towards any uh, way to think about the world. And so we've been talking with the students about um, the, you know, the power of the first step of the scientific method, which is, do you, have to, do you happen to remember, Peter or, or uh, Paul? Uh, no, no, I don't remember at all. Yeah, what's the first step? It's the, it's the step that um, actually kindergartners are the best at, which is observation. And so the first step in the scientific method is just you notice something, you make an observation, and then that provokes the second step, which is asking a question. And so really, when, I, when I'm working with college students, I often tell them, I'm like, I'm like as adults, we, it's almost like we, we sometimes lose this ability to notice minutiae in the natural world. And so it's often, you know, the young children that really are the best scientists because they are the best at provoking the first steps of the scientific method. They notice something, 
And then they ask a question and they do that all day. <laughs> so, um, you know, the starting point for science is not fancy equipment or high tech things. It's just uh, being an observant human being out in the world. And so I like to like remind the students that that's kind of the starting point for exploration and that it doesn't it doesn't take technology or anything fancy in order to do that. But so the first part of the scientific method, you've made an observation that provokes a question, and then that question provokes a potential answer to that question. You know, so you so you uh, say, um, you know, why is that uh, why is that insect caught in a web, a spider web? And then you might say the insect is caught in the spider web because uh, perhaps there's something attractive in the web that you know, uh, like lured the insect into the web. So you come up with a proposed answer to that question. And that proposed answer to the question becomes your hypothesis. A hypothesis sounds like a fancy word, but it's really just a guess at your answer to a question. And then that hypothesis forms the basis of the next step of the scientific method, which is now we're going to do an experiment to try to see if that proposed answer can be supported or refuted. And so we never say that we're proving a hypothesis. We just say we're trying to inch away at finding support for it or, um, or refuting it. And then from there, we would make another one and go from there. And so then we perform the experiment, we collect our data, and then the last piece is we communicate our results. And we communicate them either to a scientific community or the public or all of the above. And then what do we do? We lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> we do it all again after we've figured out that we've made a little bit of progress on a, on a question and then we, we do it all again. And so the quote is often attributed to Einstein. I don't know if it was actually Einstein, but it's, it's, the quote is something to the effect of, it's called research for a reason. You know, it's re-searching. You gotta do it again. <laughs> So, um, you know, one experiment isn't enough. You got to research it and do it many, many times um, and tweak things over many iterations to sort of get closer and closer to the truth. And so we're always just chipping away, getting closer to the truth. We're not actually, um, you know, we, it's rare that we get to a point that we feel like we've solved a particular problem because things are always changing. So, I introduce this kind of way of thinking to the students very early in the semester because we're going to go forward in the semester and I'm going to be presenting things to them that we presume to be relatively true. But as we gather more information, sometimes science, quote, changes its mind. And we talk about how that if you don't understand the scientific method and how scientific information is developed, um, then you think that science is a list of facts and not a process. And I think that's where public distrust in science comes in, where people start to say, well, wait, yesterday you told me coffee was good for me, and today you're telling me coffee is bad for me. Scientists don't know what they're doing, which is not the issue. Scientists know what we're doing. We just are always weighing the weight of evidence that's been developed by the scientific method over time. So again, so it's, it's sort of a tricky point because you're telling the students, you know, there, science isn't a list of facts, but there are a few things that I'm going to be testing you on, like, you know, what are the organelles inside of a cell? <laughs> so there, there are things that, um, some foundational content that we expect students to be familiar with, and yet they also have to appreciate that 
who knows, we could change our mind tomorrow if a new study comes out that gives us new information that changes the weight of the direction of the information. So um, that's like one of our foundational concepts that we're doing right now in this early part of the semester and, and having students play with that. And especially in the context of the pandemic right now and how we really are just a year into understanding this new virus, um, how our information is changing a lot. And so we've been talking about the context of understanding how scientific information can change from day to day, uh, especially in these early stages. But it doesn't mean that scientists are trying to trick the public. It's just the nature of the scientific process. Mm. So when um, political leaders say, hey, we're going to uh, base our decisions on the science, is that a good idea? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think that the average citizen, in combination with hearing that message, needs to understand that the basing decisions based on science um, may need to evolve <laughs> over time as information is, is gathered and that, um, you know, we're all, I think day to day in our lives, we're always like making the best decisions that we can make based on information that we have. And as we get new information, we may change our minds about a particular decision. And so that certainly holds true for making decisions based on science that as we gain additional information, we may need to change uh, what we're recommending. Are you going to use the scientific method to avoid running out of heating oil in the future? <laughs> well, let's see. I did an experiment, <laughs> which was, uh, you know, X number of gallons should last X amount of time. I That experiment failed. <laughs> and so, yes, has the schedule been adjusted? It's been adjusted. <laughs> so, you know, so uh, what was, I think I was sat at 60 days in the winter. I think we're going to dial back to about 50 days. <laughs> you know, we'll just have a little bit more information. We'll see. That experiment could fail too. <laughs> well, you said in the previous uh, podcast that scientists are comfortable with failure, right? It's part of the process. <laughs> yes, comfortable. Um, yeah, comfortable um, psychologically, not physically. It was very cold. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my house was like 52 degrees. <laughs> mm, that is cold. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So the whole country should be taking your class to understand the scientific method, I think. Yes. Well, you know, in this remote environment, I suppose we could just invite them all in, right? <laughs> yeah. If they would like to join in. Um, but no, this is a foundational concept, I think, in most, you know, kind of the most first week of intro science classes is really, you know, getting this point, um, getting this point out there. And I think more than ever, as scientists, we've realized that um, it's worth spending a little more time on. I think in the past, often we just like spouted out the steps of the scientific method. And I think now, because of how important it ends up being in terms of policy making, in terms of making personal decisions about your health, uh, we spend a little bit more time on it than we used to. And really emphasizing this idea of science as a process and not a list of facts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I don't remember that at all in any of my <laughs> science classes, and I didn't take a huge number of them, but uh, they probably did talk about it, but 
kind of droned on in the first class and no one was paying attention then. <laughs> well, and again, it's it's much easier to teach science as a list of facts. Mm -hmm. when you say like, you need to memorize these five things and make flashcards and then come back and then I'll test you on them. It's more challenging to say there's gray area in science and you need to acknowledge that and be comfortable with that and be willing to um, change your thinking based on new information. That's a, that's a harder message than just mm -hmm. memorize all the organelles in a cell and come back and take a quiz on them. <laughs> right. That's part of critical thinking, though, too, is the gray area that you have to get through. Yes, absolutely. So I do, I tell the students, I, you know, again, especially in my non-majors class, that if there's one thing that, you know, they remember in five years, if it's the sort of muddy aspect of science, that science is a process and we're always weighing new information. If that's the one thing they remember, I, I will take that mm. <laughs> as the, the most valuable thing that they would carry with them for the rest of their lives. Not that mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> I mean, that would be great if they remember some of those things too, but if they can retain the bigger picture, uh, that to me will be more valuable to them in the long term. So if these students just pay attention like three quarters of the time, they can get an A in your class, right? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we will see. We will We will revisit that question at the end of the semester. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. I want to know. I mean, give me the proportions. Because <laughs> it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So it shouldn't be that hard to uh, mm -hmm. pay attention and figure it out. Yeah. No, I, I have to say my... Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that a science class should be, quote, easy, but I think that, um, you know, I think it, it, it should feel relevant and mm -hmm. meaningful. And I, I don't think you have to purposely make things more, more stressful and difficult to um, get that, get the key points across. But we will see, because as we talked about, <laughs> it's always an experiment. And mm -hmm. every time you teach, you have a, you, as you're teaching, you have a, a, a file that you're keeping of the 40 things that you want to do differently the next time you teach the course. <laughs> <laughs> the work is never done. <laughs> Director of Library Services, Veronica Kanasis, is always reading a book, and she's agreed to come on and talk about some of them here on the podcast. Hi, how are you? Good, how Thanks are you? Thanks for joining us again for the book talk. I love the book talk. Yeah, me too. Um, so today I want to talk about a book by one of my favorite Native American authors. Her name is Louise Erdrich. Erdrich. I'm not exactly sure how to say her name. E-R-D-R-I-C-H. But the name of the book is called La Rose. And La Rose is actually um, a, a man's name, a boy's name. And this was a stunning, stunning novel. Um, all, she always writes about Native American themes. But the premise of this novel is that in the very, very beginning of the book, two families live near each other. Um, and the father of one family um, is out hunting. And the son of the other family is out playing. And he accidentally shoots and kills the young boy. Six years old, five or six years old, I don't know. Boy had been climbing a tree. He thought it was, a, uh, he saw a deer. The rest of the novel unfolds at how these two Native American families sort of um, 
grapple with this tragedy. And apparently in Native American culture or ancient Native American culture, one of the things that they do if you have taken something that belongs to another family is you give them something of equal value. And in this novel, they give their son, their six-year-old son, to the family whose child was killed in recompense for having killed that child. And it is fascinating, the 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 development of the families as they grow older. The, the young boy is taken from his home and put into this new home with a new sister and new parents, and he obviously doesn't understand any of it. But then he's allowed to go to his real home for maybe a couple of days over the weekend or maybe a week at certain times. And the way the whole story sort of evolves, um, obviously the mother of the of the child who was killed has real mental health issues. And um, the young boy is able to kind of get her through that along with the sister and the, how the relationships develop between the two families. They were very, very friendly prior to the accident, obviously not so much afterwards, um, but they are constant. They're in constant contact because they are now sharing this boy um, as both of their child. Um, and it was something so outside of, you know, my experience, my understanding. Um, and it was just a fascinating um, a fascinating premise um, to read about. There also came into the story lots of Native American culture and lots of Native American folklore and myth, myth mythology about um, ancient souls. So La Rose, the child, was actually named for an ancient La Rose, and there was some uh, some exploration of how the ancient La Rose was being. Um, manifested in this child as well. So um, so it was really, it was long and rambling and just a new twister turn. And then there was also some social intrigue um, towards the towards the three quarters of the way through where the mother of the surviving child um, had had a relationship with um, another man um, prior to her marriage. And but he never really got over it. So he then started, came in and said, the child who perished did not have to die. Like he was still alive. And the father who shot him was just let him die. Mm. Um, and, and so there was more family conflict and more social unrest uh, surrounding those things. And it kind of reminded me of the fake news situation that we've gone through too, because as soon as people heard that, it was very compelling to hear that it wasn't true at all, but it was very compelling to hear it, and people just latched onto it, and then factions were formed. And so everybody who believed that the child didn't have to die was on this side, and everybody who, yeah. And allegations of drug abuse and, um, and impairment while he was hunting all came out, and it was um, lots of history came out to, to make the to make that that uh, story more compelling. So really was a fantastic. It took me a long time to get through it. It was one of those novels. I don't know if you have the experience where you have to like get to a certain point, like I have to go back to the earlier chapter to make sure I understood what was actually mm -hmm. happening there because there was a lot of intricacies in the story. But it was mm -hmm. amazing. I love Louise Erdrich. She's written many, many, many novels um, along these themes. And she's just a really super talented writer. Yeah. <laughs>
And was this set in contemporary times? Yeah, it was set in contemporary times, although it reached back to, into ancestry. So mm -hmm. um, there were there they laid some groundwork. But yes, it was in contemporary times. It was on a um, the the edges of a uh, Native American reservation. Um, and with all of those social um, issues that come into play with that, with the extreme poverty and the the to the poor school systems and all of that kind of coalesced into this this family story. Yeah, so it was in, it was in contemporary times. Yeah, that sounds good. Did you feel good after you finished it, or? Um, <laughs> I think anytime you read a um, read a book with such um, profound tragedy that starts with such a profound tragedy, um, there's always a tinge of sadness there. Things do turn out, I guess, what you would consider okay at the end. The families do um, heal to a certain extent as much as they can heal, um, or rather they made room for the tragedy, um, they made room for the reality. And other pieces of the family, other um, members of the family were able to, you can you could see by the end how they were going to emerge um, and be able to move forward with their lives. Um, you could see some relationships being repaired. So it does end on a, a hopeful note. You, you don't see it all unfold, but it does end on a hopeful note. Um, and there you do see some some important healing happening. Mm -hmm. And you hope, I guess, the way it ends is that, that that's going to continue, that there's not going to be something that comes along to interrupt that, um, that they're, they're just going to continue to move forward with their lives. It's so easy in our Connecticut society to, I think, ignore Native American stories and issues or even think about anything about Native mm -hmm. Americans. And... Um, which I personally think is a mistake since uh, uh, America has such a horrible history of how we treated Americans and actually still on the reservations. Yes. Um, so that's reading a book, again, is one way to uh, educate yourself about it. And, yeah. and um, not just educate, but feel more human, right? Make connections with other humans. I think that's a really good point, uh, that it is, it's so important. I, referencing an earlier book talk that we've had, um, it's so important that we understand that our experience is not the experience, that mm. my experience is not representative of everybody's experience, that we walk through the world through the country um, in very different ways with very profoundly, and I keep saying, I think I've said that word a lot this talk, <laughs> uh, but profoundly different outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so whereas at the, 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 what I inhabit, the life that I inhabit allows me to go and anywhere, really anywhere. There might be some places where I feel a little bit unsafe. Um, you know, there are layers of this, obviously. As a woman, there I was taught mm -hmm. as, a, as a young girl to make sure I carried my keys with the key between my finger while I'm walking to my car. I mean, there's, so there are layers of this for sure. But the, 
the layer where I am is is such that um, you know I, I I feel welcomed everywhere. I know I can go anywhere in this country and find a place where you know nobody's going to give me a second look um, and nobody's going to worry about me being there. And that's not true um, for large swaths, significant swaths of our population. Um, so I think it's really important, and the only way to move forward is to recognize that at all levels. Um, and again, referencing our, our earlier conversation, you know, the, the question that is in front of us now is what we do about that. Mm-hmm. How do we move forward? How do we how do we start to build a society that that isn't true? You know, how how is it? How do we build a society where it nobody Nobody has to feel like they are less than or in danger because of their background and their, right. the color of their skin. So, yeah. Yeah, and they haven't been ground into poverty for generations. Exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. I also work with, um, this is interesting because um, I work, I have a little, I have a little, I have an activist life outside of the library. Where I work with an organization called Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. It is a gun violence prevention uh, organization, and um, we are turning the whole organization, it's a national organization, and we're turning our attention to um, different kinds of gun. Mass shootings always get, you know, the headlines, um, mm-hmm. um, but really two-thirds of the gun deaths in this country are suicides, mm. um, and that is very high among the Native American population. Um, mm-hmm. So we just there all there are all these intersections. I'm not sure I love that word intersectionality, but there are all these intersections where you know the the issues in our society really um, that disproportionately affect um, the the uh, minorities or oppressed. Um, there also are problems, right? Mm-hmm. Where everybody's problem is the same. It's just a matter of how we start to approach it and understand that it's not just the white perspective that we need to be concerned with, but really um, these these what we call minority perspectives or at least underrepresented groups. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Great. All right. Yeah, these book <laughs> talks really uh, widen up the world, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we should get a couple more people involved because I want to hear what other people are reading. Mm. All right. Does anybody else read books, though? <laughs> I think a lot of the librarians do. Let me see if I can get anybody to do a book talk with you. Okay. That'll yeah. be good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Veronica. The book was called La Rose by Louise Erdrich. And I've uh, reserved it online for my uh, uh, downloadable uh, version as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. It sounds very depressing. Yeah, I officially uh, requested that sometime in the next couple of books, she has to do one that's silly and cheesy and fun because the last two have been, I'm sure, I haven't read either one yet, but excellent books, but uh, a little on the on the heavy side. So, Yep, you keep <laughs> thinking about them, like including at 3 a.m., which that's is good. fine. I mean, that's what know, books are that. good, yes, yeah. yes. It changes the way you think about things in a good way. All right. And uh, so we're in our second or third week of classes. Everything is going well at the moment. And everybody's happy, right? I honestly, I mean, you know, obviously I don't talk to everybody, but anybody that I've talked to seems like they're doing well. I mean, they've kind of got this whole 
wacky way of doing things down and you know all of our yeah. student workers here in the department seem like they're you know on a good footing and the storm like audrey mentioned this too but the storm kind of threw us for a loop because we were just starting to get back <laughs> and then yeah. uh that's true. The thing is, you can go, you're going to, nothing stops. It's all online. So it's not the same, but it is not like taking two days off, which is what we would have done last year. Yeah, it's true. And that really messes things up. There was one a couple of years ago, and I think we've talked about this on the show before. There was a, a winter where there were like seven Mondays snowstorms or something, or, you know, yeah. there, there was classes that met once a week that were so far behind, they didn't know how they were going to evaluate the kids because it was pre-virtual yeah. days so. and it was literally i think six or seven mondays yeah. that were blown out it was nuts yeah that will never happen again all right i guess that's it yeah, right? it's enough of us babbling anyway yes all right <laughs> so uh that's this edition of at wcsu i'm paul steinmetz for pete puccio and we'll see you next week yeah, and please let us know if there's something you guys want to hear about, if there's uh, someone you think that deserves to get on here and have their, uh, you know, a spotlight put on them. And, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you. That's a great idea. Where would they email? Oh, uh, if they listen to the outro, they'll hear it. But podcasts at wcsu.edu. Or you can, uh, you know, send us a message on Instagram or at WCSU Media. Oh, yeah. All those things. Great. We expect to hear from you. We better. Oh, that's a little threatening. Maybe I'll... Uh... <laughs> Please? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Folby. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.